everybody. Welcome back to our second podcast. It is the Black Tribe, Gary and Lisa Black. Uh, you know, the tribe actually consists of our own children like we've talked about before, Tyler and Alexis and Emily, and we had Michael and Caleb and Noah, and then our spiritual sons and daughters, which they're all over the planet, and we're just gaining more and more family. You know, God, all God cares about is he's getting his family back, and, and so that's what this Black Tribe podcast is all about. Today, I'm sitting once again with my beautiful bride, Lisa Marie. Would you like to say hello, Lisa? Hello. Hi. Hi, baby. How you doing? Oh, I'm so good. Yeah. I love being in this room with you. It's a good room. It is a good room. It's a good day. <laughs> it is a good day. Uh, our last podcast, um, we talked about my testimony, my life, mm -hmm. and I tried to share that as quickly as I possibly could. You did awesome. The older you get, guys, obviously, the longer your testimony goes, but you also learn that the things that are really important to you in the seasons aren't so much important to you later. And so um, it's we're teaching the class right now at G42, actually, yeah. how to share their testimonies more precisely and for the point of a point of from healing, not from a point of being a victim or being hurt. Yes, from the point that you were probably victimized at some point in your childhood, that uh, now you are an overcomer, and yeah. that's the place that you get to testify from—a place of overcoming. And then, when you truly have overcome, then you can pull people along with you. So that's what we believe. Yes, that's right. It's good. We don't believe it all happens for a reason. We don't believe God did it, and we don't think He gives you more than you can handle. Because I've been given more than I could handle every single day of my life. Yeah, you that mean he, he does give us more than we can handle. He gives us yes. way more than we can handle. Because he wants to join with us and, and, and come through with and for us. So He must trust us more than we trust ourselves. <laughs> Amen. Well, today, sweetheart, we're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about your testimony, kind of your life, the progression, and, and some of what you've walked through, and now what you're walking others through. Because we... We, you can't teach what you haven't caught, and we're big believers in impartation, not just teaching. And we've caught quite a bit, and so there's not very many people we meet that we can't kind of walk into healing just because of the things we've been through in life. But let's start with your story. So you are from Michigan. I'm a Detroit, Michigan girl. Yeah, you yep. always show me your hand. Yeah, so, actually yeah. Plymouth, Michigan, which is a very, very sweet little town. But um, I never really did feel at home in Michigan. I always felt like I was supposed to be somewhere where there was either um, an ocean or a lot of sunshine. So I really had pretty much a very amazing childhood, especially when you consider that my parents were abused and neglected. They were both and, orphans, right? Yeah, they were, they were orphaned. And my dad grew up in a really abusive household and is a very sensitive man. And it, it really left some serious scars on his heart. And... My mother was pretty much orphaned by the time she was eight because her uh, mom died and her dad could not take care of her. And uh, But you would never know that if you had met them in their early 20s when they became parents. They were loving and kind. And um, I remember a house full of stability. I remember us spending time together. My parents are very, very hard workers. So you, you're middle, right? You I'm the middle. I got older sister, younger sister. Three um, of you, okay. I did not feel neglected. <laughs> I'm not a typical middle child. I, when people would say things, I'm thinking, well, how much do people need? Like, you don't really need that much. But um, I had a really amazing childhood, and I remember being very small and being in the backyard. I always loved being outside. And my mother would say to me, who are you talking to? 
And she told me that I would always say I'm talking to God. So how old were you when that started happening? Two and a half, three years old. Really? Yeah. So two and a half, three years old, you're in the backyard of your parents' house. Yes. You guys aren't Christians at this point. We don't point, go to church. We don't talk about God. But you're talking to God. I'm talking to God. He's talking to me. Okay. He's always talking to me. And I always felt like he was like just this extension of me. And I thought everyone had that life. I thought everybody just talked to God and he talked to them all the time. And um, I was, it's kind of crazy when you think about it because I had no formal training or anyone praying with me or telling me that I should believe that. But God was clearly um, wanted my family in the kingdom because we had some crazy stuff happen that brought us that way. So I was really raised in a Baptist church and I loved it. Okay. I loved it. I learned Good scripture. Baptist, yes. It was awesome. But part of that that I came into was a lot of religion and a lot of judgment towards other people. Yes. But, well, you know, one of the things we always say, uh, you know, World Race, G42, all the ministries that we get to touch, that when we can get a good Baptist or, or Presbyterian kid and then get them Holy Spirit and get them freed from their religion, those are the best kids we can get because yes. they're disciplined. They know the Word of God. Yes. And not much of this generation actually reads, especially the Bible. And guys, the Bible's still very relevant. It's very important. There's a, the, the Old Testament is both metaphorical and it really did happen. I think it's both and always for us. And um, so, so you're Baptist. Baptist. You're talking to God. You're talking raised to God, now in the church a Christmas bit. Christmas or you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights, um, in the choir. My parents were elders. We just were really, really involved. And about, about the time I was 12 or 13, my mother started feeling like we needed more than we were receiving. Um, just she wanted deeper teaching. And um, she went to our pastor, and he really didn't have anything to offer her except for books. And so she started seeking out more um, more depth. And we got into the charismatic movement. Okay. Um, and which, how did that happen? What, did she just meet somebody? No, it was just a church that was in the, it was, you know, it was the 80s. So it was all about money and shoulder pads and big earrings and big hair. Big and... hair. I love all those things. But I did not love the charismatic movement because my exposure to it was a great deal of emotion and manipulation and control. And so, so I. another form of religion, basically. I basically equo I equated the charismatic movement with um, that, Holy, that the Holy Spirit was controlling. Okay. So um, it was... It it's kind of like when you have a bad father, you picture God like that father. Exactly. So you saw Holy Spirit as controlling and manipulative because yes. that's what you were experiencing at church. Which I still loved God and still talked to God all the time and he talked to me all the time. And I trusted hearing his voice and I knew there were things going on in that church that were not, had nothing to do with God. Okay. And I think I've always had discernment in that way. So it was a very hard time for our family because... I think my parents had always been very united, but my dad didn't like what was going on in the church. And um, the church basically said, it's us or him, which is a horrible thing to say to a mother with three small children. So it caused a lot of division in our family, but we survived it. And um, about the time I was 19, I was in a much smaller little church and helping out with the youth group and graduated from high school, going to college. And I met a young man that was a youth pastor in a different, um, it was actually a blind date. He lived probably an hour from where I lived. And he was just this really, I'd never met anybody that sincere in my life. And he um, really loved God and really was seeking after him. And 
I really did not want to get married young, and I really was not interested in having children young. I really re- wanted to finish school, but he was very, very, very persistent. <laughs> and so we got married um, December 9th, 1989. 89. 89. Okay. So you're 19. 19. When you get married. Mm-hmm. And you are in love. I am. He's I was. A, he's a good man. He's a good man. Okay. Good. He was good. We had a great friendship. We had a lot of fun together. Um, and then surprise got pregnant with Alexis about four months into that. And then surprise got pregnant with Emily about two years after that. So by the time we'd been married six years, we had a two year old and a four year old. Wow. And this was about the time I was starting to think there's got to be more than just paying your bills and going to sleep and getting up and doing the same thing all over again and dying emotionally going to Florida, getting a double wide trailer, playing golf all the time and then dying. Yeah. And that was all that I saw all around me. I didn't see people that had any perspective on the world outside. I'm sure there were people. I just didn't know any of them. Um, But I had this hunger in me that kept telling me I was created for more than just this. And I was really, really feeling that right about the time that um, and having some conversations with John about that, um, which terrified him. It was absolutely terrified. So it terrified him that you were thinking bigger than just, we're going to work at this Ford factory, we're going to go to church on Sundays, we're going to dress up and look real nice, and then we're going to go vacation in Florida or yeah. North Carolina, right? And then once we're ready to retire, we're going to move down there in a double-wide trailer and chase a white ball around a course and get our handicap down. Well, that's all he'd ever been taught. Right. And so um, I think... I scared him a little bit just because um, I wasn't, the way he would describe me is that I was not afraid of anything. Okay. And the way I would describe him is he was afraid of almost everything, which was sad because he was very intelligent. He had a lot to offer and he definitely was very pastoral and had a lot of young men that he discipled, a lot of young people that looked up to him. He had a really, really beautiful heart, but he was, he would have been really happy staying in that lifestyle forever. And had he... If, if our marriage had lasted, I would have, I probably would be there. I don't think that would be something I would ever leave for. I okay. just would have been frustrated. Okay, so you're, you're thinking big. It's scaring him. And then, so what, what happens from there? Well, we were sitting on the couch one afternoon, and we held hands before he went to work because he worked nights and I worked days. And we were praying, and I was just like, God, I just want to know you. I just want to know what you have. Like, what is available to me? What can I you know, what are the depths that I can really understand you? And I, was, I literally said, I don't care what it costs. Hmm. I don't care what I have to do. I just really want to know who you are. Dangerous prayers. Super dangerous prayer. Yeah. I thought he was just going to tell me another book besides the Bible I needed to read. I had no idea. And um, about a couple, maybe a year or two after that, um, John had started drinking and I was completely unaware of it. He, um, I knew, I had heard the story that he was in college when he was about 21 maybe, that he had a binging problem okay. and that he drank himself basically almost to death one night. And that was the night that scared him enough that he got down on his knees and he asked God to take over. And he made vows that night that he would not have sex with anybody he wasn't married to. He was not gonna touch, any alcohol again as long as he lived and he would just spend the rest of his life serving the Lord. So I only knew that man. I didn't ever see the struggle. I never smelled anything, never saw him drunk, never, nothing had happened up to that point. And so we were, um, 
as far as I knew, doing great. I still don't didn't see any huge, big red flags like people would say that that would happen. He wasn't missing work. We weren't fighting. He wasn't his personality hadn't changed. But we definitely were living that American dream where we both had to work all the time in order to survive. And we were just missing each other constantly okay. and only saw each other <clears throat> again. So day after Thanksgiving, he was going to work some overtime. And the girls and I were dec- decorating the Christmas tree. And um, he usually called me every couple hours from work. And he hadn't, I hadn't heard from him about maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He called me. And he was talking, I think I was talking to the girls and and doing stuff. And he said, I just knew if I heard your voice, everything would be okay. Hmm. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but he was very kind of dependent on me to keep him feeling stable and steady. So time went by, time kept going by and no calls, no nothing. I started calling people, um, searching everyone I could get a hold of. Have you seen John? Is he okay? I haven't heard from him. He should have been home hours ago. At about 11.30 at night, I called his twin brother, and um, I said, I really feel like something's wrong. I feel like John must be hurt somewhere. We need to get to him. It's not like him not to call me. I just have this really bad feeling. And Chuck said, I feel it too. And then right at that moment, we both um, felt like we we were having a heart attack. Our hearts started racing. So you call his twin brother. His twin brother. John's twin brother, and... You're speaking to one another, and you just both kind of know something's happening. At the exact same moment, we, we, neither one of us could breathe. Our heart was racing. I said, oh, my God, Chuck, did you feel that? He said, I did feel it. And um, him and I talked a little bit longer and cried together. I didn't know what to do. My girls were in bed. I, I couldn't just you know leave and start looking for him. And finally, at 2 o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on the door, and it was a young policeman standing there. He, I'll never forget how miserable he looked. It was freezing out. He was young, and I think the job that he had to do that night was his worst nightmare. It could have been the first time he'd even done it. He was so young, but he asked me my name and said, I really need you to call this number right away. And um, so I tried like three or four times to call the number, but my hand was shaking so bad and finally got through to a sergeant who told me he had John's things with him, and um, John's body was in the morgue, and they needed me to come identify it in the morning. Okay, so you're how old at this point? 25. You're 25. You've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, baby girls. Your husband hadn't been drinking. You didn't know this side of him at all. And then this one night, he chose to go out with his buddies, Mm -hmm. some guys he was discipling. Guys he was discipling. And um, and he binge drank, clearly. And what happened? What? How did it... You know, I hired um, private detectives, and I uh, researched, and I read everything I could get my hands on, and um, I don't think I'll ever know what happened that night exactly, but the most, the friends that he was with were also very intoxicated, and they felt horrible um, about this, just absolutely horrible about it. They were great to me, but um, from what I have pieced together, he was at a bar that was very, very old, probably like over 100 years old, outside Detroit in E-Course. I don't think it's there anymore. And he um, opened a door that I think he was looking to try and find a payphone because this is before, this is 1995, to call me. And stepped in maybe to turn on a light or something, missed, a, missed it, not realizing there was a step there, and fell all the way down the stairs, landed on his face and his chest, and um, his brain bled and he was killed instantly. Hmm. But his friends were so intoxicated, it took hours before they could find him because I don't know if the door just shut or what happened um, there. But 
it took a long time for me to get all that information together. And then one day I just decided I don't want to spend the rest of my life trying to put this puzzle together because it's keeping me upset all the time and he's not coming back. No matter what I figure out, he's not coming back. And you're trying to walk these two little girls through where's daddy, what's happening with daddy, what was that like? It was my worst nightmare because I adored my girls. They probably adored their dad even more than they adored me because he was a lot of fun, you know. He played the Barbies and I was always doing the mom thing. But um, they were pretty traumatized to the point where, you know, Emily was fully potty trained and she started going to the bathroom again at night. Um, We couldn't sleep. We couldn't eat. I was experiencing everything that had to do with shock, but I didn't want my girls to see me hysterical. So I would do whatever I could to keep them distracted during the day. Um, And I would try and hold myself together till I'd get them to bed at night. And then I would just scream into my pillow and cry and wail and question and... It was, it was really traumatic. Wow. So then you make a big decision yeah. to leave Michigan. Tell us about that. Well, this sounds kind of um, silly, but because I had this adventurous side in me and wanted to see things, I had been talking to John for years about just leaving Michigan and just starting a new life somewhere more beautiful, somewhere more interesting, somewhere where maybe we could find new friends and start a new community. And it just, life just never fully clicked in the town that we were in. I always felt like I was a a stranger there. I never felt like it was my home. And so I called my dad and I realized the only reason I lived there was because John worked there. And I didn't have to live there anymore. And so I packed up my girls and I sold my house and I traded in my mom's sedan for a truck and I moved out to Colorado Springs where I knew absolutely nobody within a year after John had died. So John's dead a year, you decide I don't need to be here anymore. It's cold, it's miserable, it's cloudy. I'm gonna drive and did you know it was gonna be Colorado Springs? It was, it wasn't just the weather, it wasn't just, it was that the gossip at the church that we went to was so intense all the time. I felt like I literally had to get up every morning and defend his honor and his name. Well, to the family and to the to church. To the family and to the church. Yeah. A lot of people blamed me. A lot of people said, you must have been a really horrible wife in order for him to be drinking like this. They To say they weren't supportive would be. <laughs> now, of course, I did have angels come to my house, like the guy that came to fix the plumbing who prophesied over me. I didn't even know what prophecy was. And I never took my ring off because I had all this stuff that I was getting done to the house and I didn't want any men to know that I was single and because I just felt more vulnerable. And it was just crazy the way that God would send complete strangers to my house and say, I don't know who you are. I don't know what's going on. But the Lord just told me to tell you that you are going to be okay and he is taking care of you. And that would happen over and over. No one had ever talked to me like that before. And I never told anyone my story. That's incredible. And I always pulled myself together because I didn't want them to think that I was vulnerable. So he provided that in the midst of the storm. And he was very present in minute by minute, day by day, showing me how to help the girls walk through this. Okay, so you, so you get to Colorado Springs. Yes. And it's not easy. You're a widow. Mm-hmm. And your parents came with you. They did. And you've, you've got the girls, and, and so what does that tell us what that was like? Is that Well, we bought houses next door to each other because I needed my independence because I left when I was 19, and I don't think you can go back home after you leave. And so my girls had constant access to their grandparents, which was amazing. So they had a strong male figure in their life. 
Um, I made friends. We started going to church. I, I, it was really, I would go on long, long, long hikes and runs and the Lord would just heal me. He would call me out of bed at night and call me down into the living room where my Bible was and he would speak his affections over me and tell me his plans for me and I would journal and I'd get up and go to work and have tons of energy. The girls never got sick. I mean, he just literally put us in a bubble. Plus the sun shines all the time in Colorado and it's just, it's a beautiful place. And that I do think the fact that I got to be out in nature and have quiet for probably the first time in my life like that was part of the healing. Okay. So then the girls, how did you walk them through? You're in Colorado. It's a new place for them. Their dad's not around. What was that like to, how did you help them process that? Well, at first it was, they watched home videos 24 hours a Mm. day. So I heard his voice 24 hours a day and it got to a point after six months. And I said, girls, I think we need to really limit the videos. I wanted to help them, but it was, I, I could not begin to heal because I was hearing his voice all the time, but he wasn't there. So we did a lot of crazy things. We did a lot of hikes together. We drew a lot of pictures. We dressed up. Sometimes they dress up in their dad's clothes. But the one moment that I'll never forget is Alexis had one shirt that belonged to her dad that still smelled like him around the co- the collar. And when she would get upset, she'd ask for the shirt. And then one day she started getting upset, and I went to grab the shirt, and she threw it back in my face, which was not her personality at all. She's a really sweet girl. And um, said, I don't want this stupid shirt. I want my dad. And I had no idea what to do with that and went to bed crying that night. Like, how do I comfort her? What do I do? The next day, I'm cleaning the house and emptying the dishwasher. And Emily, who's three at the time, starts running around in circles and screaming, where's my dad? Where's my dad? I can't find my dad. Oh, my God. Where's my dad? I can't find my dad. She was like in a trance. And so I grabbed her and grabbed Alexis. And I kind of just fell back on the, the back of the wall and just said, God, I have no idea what I'm doing or how I'm going to do this. And I went to get the shirt and the Lord said to me so clearly, stop trying to stop their pain. Every mm. time they cry, they're finding another piece of my heart. Let me comfort them. Wow. And that changed how I parented everyone from that moment on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of everyone, we'll get to that in a little bit. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break here. Uh, one of our staff out here at G42 major step. The steps are are beautiful and brilliant staff here and they help us with our branding and everything else. He does our podcast. He's going to break in here, tell you a little bit of what's going on with us and some ways to connect. So we'll be right back. Major Step here. Just wanted to give you a quick update on the Blacks. They are launching a brand new website. It's going to launch on April 17th, GaryAndLisaBlack.com. On the website, there's going to be all sorts of resources and links to Patreon sites where they have all their podcasts and books and things coming out. Um, And you'll get first access there. So if you would like first access and want to find a fun way to give back to the Blacks, this is uh, the direction to go, GaryAndLisaBlack.com. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, that was Major. We love him so much. Um, all right, Lisa, so you, this is your story. You're um, in Colorado Springs. The girls are still small. You 
working inner city at the pregnancy center with inner city kids. Uh, you have been widowed for five years. And so why don't you pick up the story there and, and what kind of shifted in your life? <laughs> it's been about, it's probably been about four years. And um, the best thing I did was went back to work because when you're giving your life away, it's hard to focus on your misery. And I could work for 12 hours at the counseling center and not be exhausted and come home and be a single mom. And I did do something kind of crazy. I bought kind of a bigger house. I'm not sure why, probably because it was just cheap at that time. Um, the market was really good. And I made a conscious decision that I was probably never going to get married again as a like 26-year-old. Isn't that funny? And so I sold my house that had five bedrooms, and I bought one that only had three and was really small, but I loved it. And I renovated it and made it really, really cute and super girly and shabby chic. And I just thought, this is where the girls will finish growing up, and when I'm an old lady, I can still live here. So that was my plan. So I did that, and I loved my job. I loved what I did. I got to speak in the high schools um, on abstinence, on drug use. on. They'd always send me the toughest schools that nobody else wanted to go to, and I was like, the tougher the group, the happier I was. And I fell in love with gang members. I'm still in love with gang members, especially male gang members, because I feel like if you just spend enough time with them, it does not take much to find the little boy heart in all of them. So kids living on the street that are getting girls pregnant, uh, they're tough and they're They've got guns, and they're and they're in part of these big gangs, and they would come in and see you, and you would turn them into mush. Well, they were my boys. Yeah, you just I loved, loved them well. Them. I just loved them, and yeah. I still do. And it's, it was great. It was, you know, you look back, and all the things that the Lord was doing with me in business, I was doing sales also, is he used all of that for my future. I had to learn how to speak in front of crowds, which was not something I ever wanted to do. I had to learn how to diffuse very difficult situations where maybe guns or knives or something would be pulled. Um, I learned how to calm people down that were not emotionally stable. And I learned that the gospel really is a gospel of love. And I was able to shake off, I thought, a great deal of the religion. And and I realized that I was created to love people. Wow. And it was easy. Okay, so I'm going to break into your story here. I, I, As you do. I, my, our best friends at the time, uh, the good old Limperts, um, kept talking to you and talking to me about each other. And uh, I'll never forget Dave saying, you've got to meet this woman. She's widow. She's gorgeous. She's strong. She's powerful. You guys would be perfect for one another. Uh, I had lost my first wife at the time already, and I was I had fighting for custody of my three sons. And so I stalked you. Yes, I, <laughs> I, yes you did. I wanted to see if you were really as beautiful as everybody was saying. And uh, so I parked my truck in the parking lot across from your work and watched you walk out to your car. And I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's somebody I can talk to. And so... And so you did. I did. I did. I just walked into your office. I know. And it, I had never seen a tall, blonde man in a nice leather coat dressed before ever in my office because they usually... We're covered in tattoos and you know you just I was like what is this guy here for he does not belong here so I was instantly intrigued with your personality and I was instantly attracted to you but I never um, thought of that I would marry a man with a difficult situation because I do enjoy having a nice calm life <laughs> so then so I then bring the three boys weeks, like, we were trying what we were trying to do what 
I thought we were trying to do was trying to figure out how to get your interns from your ministry to volunteer because I needed more volunteers and I was in charge of that. Yes. So I thought that we were doing some business together. And so the next time you came back to solidify things, you brought your three sons with you. Yes. And, and what did that do to you? Oh, my gosh. Tyler was eight. Michael was six and Caleb was two and a half and they were completely out of control. <laughs> they ate all the food that we had out for our um, volunteers. I was getting dirty looks from my coworkers because we were counseling people on life and death situations and the boys were running up and down the hall. And so we took them to the conference room and we're trying to have this meeting in quotes and they're flicking pens at each other. And I just literally... I had never seen so much life crammed into such little bodies. Yeah. And I was absolutely just enthralled with them. I just thought that they were, not just that they were cute, I was just drawn to them. And Caleb had this sweetness about him where he wouldn't let me hold him or touch him um, until I was in his life for a, about a couple of weeks. But I, I just saw this little boy's heart. And when you got in the truck, in your truck and put your boys in the truck. I looked out my office window and I saw you drive away and my heart kind of sank and I thought, there goes my family. Wow. I know. <laughs> oh, dangerous. Dangerous. <laughs> okay, so we start hanging out a little bit. A little bit. We start building a relationship. You start reminding me who I was because I'd been completely destroyed emotionally. I'd lost my reputation, the ministry. Uh, my first wife decided to leave and tried to anyway it's a horrible situation you've heard it and you started to bring me back to life you started to speak life into my spirit directly and uh, we would have to sneak around town because I wasn't allowed to be seen with anybody because I was still part of a big church there in the city it was kind of ridiculous stupid it was totally stupid so pick that up so what yeah I (laughs) I really felt like my attraction to you was so strong and then when I saw you with your boys, I saw your heart, and that did. That I just I'd never seen a man with a heart like that before. I saw how hard you were willing to fight for your family, and that was intriguing to me because I, I saw that warrior side that you were going to take care of your boys. I saw how um, dedicated you were. Um, I'd never seen you preach. I'd never seen any of that side of you, even though my nieces would come and stay with me, come down from Denver and go to your events before I had known you. And they'd always ask me if I wanted to go. I said, no, I don't want to go see, see some prophet. I, don't, I can't stand that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so I knew your reputation. I knew you, you, were, you were heading up in the world, but it was really your heart, as cheesy as that sounds. And then I finally agreed to go out with you because I was I wasn't really playing hard to get. I actually was hard to get. <laughs> I just had walls around my heart. Yeah. You know, my heart had been broken. And I and I knew your situation was complicated, so I wasn't sure that um, I could handle it or that I wanted to handle it. And I really feel like the Lord said to me, you can, you can keep on the road you're on. You can raise these girls, and you can keep moving ahead with your career, or you can marry this man. I, I love you no matter what you do. And I really looked at the road with just the girls and I, and it was very clean. And it was very simple, and it was going to be nice, but it's also going to be boring. And I would not be stretched as a person. Yeah. And that life that I saw in those little boys wasn't going to be there. And I already, I was already missing that. And I looked at the road that you guys were on, and I knew the cost was going to be high. I didn't have any idea how high. I would, I, I don't think you ever know how high it, but I knew that it was going to challenge me. But I knew I had a lot of love to give, and I knew that I was good at nurturing. 
I was good at loving people and I was, I was good at taking care of a man and you were broken and destroyed and distraught and I desperately wanted to be there for you and support you in that. And I wanted that crazy little boy life in my house and I wanted my girls exposed to that. Yeah. So we go on our first date and I basically read your mail. You thought I'd been reading your diaries because God told me all things about you. It freaked me out. It freaked you out a little, but our, our hearts knitted and we started a relationship. We did. And so, and I may be hard to get into the relationship, but once I'm in, I I'll die there. Yes. I'm super loyal. Extremely loyal person. Once I was in, I was all in. What I love about you, babe, is, uh, and the interns will tell everybody this, you never share anything that anybody tells you in confidence. And uh, it's just uh, incredible to watch uh, Mm -hmm. day after day after day. So, all right. So we're in a relationship. We start dating and um, we basically (laughs) speed things up. As it was literally the worst of times and the best of yes. times because the custody battle and the trauma that we were going through there is unlike anything else I've ever, I can't even explain to people, they wouldn't believe it, but it's just this constant stress and anxiety like nothing you've ever known and your kids are in the middle of it and everyone's feeling it all the time and just to keep a, any normalcy is, is a huge deal. So the worst of that was what we had to deal with all the time and of course the girls had nothing to do with it, they got dragged, the kids were innocent. But we knew we had to get these boys to a place of safety, and we never wavered no, on that. No, we didn't. Um, but the best of times of that is you were in sales, and so you could get everything done by a Thursday at 4, and we would take off in the truck with all five kids, and we would go somewhere in Colorado where there was no cell phone service. Yeah. And we would camp and boat and have mud fights and eat hot dogs, and we literally became a family. Yeah, we did. We would get out. And just party together as we a family. Had so much babies fun. laying all over that truck on the way home. Uh, three gallons of sunburn. sunscreen, yeah. <laughs> get those. Okay, so we 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 form our family. We get our families together. We start with five kids under the age of eight. Under the age of eight is our introductory to one another. This is eighteen years ago, and uh, and they make a documentary about our lives. Mm-hmm. And they come out and film, and they interview us. And this documentary went all over the world, and. And I'm trying to build business, and I know there's a ministry call. Tell us about that. What was that like for you? Well, we had um, we had the children, and then I decided that I wanted to have a baby with you, which is hilarious. Um, and we ended up having two miscarriages. One of was very physically traumatic, and the other one was emotionally traumatic. And I thought, maybe I'm being selfish here, but I just really felt like there was this human being that was in the heavenly realm that needed to be on the earth. Like I knew the earth needed this baby. Yes. And then um, I found out I was pregnant. I didn't tell anyone except for you because we had had told the kids too early. And I was terrified to get excited about this baby. And um, one of your friends stopped by to see you. And he looked at me and you weren't home. And he looked at me and he said, why do I see the hands of Jesus wrapped around your womb? Wow, that's right. And I said, I I didn't tell anybody, but I'm pregnant. He said, this baby is not only going to be a blessing to your family, he is going to be beautiful. That was Danny C. That was Danny C. And he said, relax and enjoy this pregnancy. This little boy is going to bring so much life to your family. And Noah was absolutely has been that. One of the many brilliant, beautiful prophets in my life. That was incredible. I'll, I'll never forget that. So we um, we start this young family, and it's it's tragic. It's it's we're getting chased down. We've lost 
our our own our both of our houses were we've had to file bankruptcy fighting well, for the boys custody because if you are if you're going through the right process like we did you have to pay attorneys $5,000 up front constantly, yeah. like every Monday it seemed like. Yeah. And um, the whatever they tell you you have to do, you do. And it, we went through all of our savings. We I owned more of my house than I owed on. I lost my house. We lost everything in we that. Did. So. And we still pay on it a little 18 years later. And we're still making later. little yeah. payments on it. Yeah, so then we, we have this opportunity and we meet and go back into ministry. And we decide we're, we're living in a 7,000 square foot home on five acres in Monument, Colorado. And we do this crazy thing and sell everything and go to Africa. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about Africa and how that was with the, the kids. Africa was actually amazing for me because it was so dangerous where we lived that we had to have um, everybody in the house in the house by 430. Yeah. It was just too dangerous to be out. We had barbed wire all around our house. We had no internet. We had no TV, and so the five kids, the six kids, got really um, creative with games that they would play inside the house. But we had dinner together every night, and we had been living the American lifestyle with lots of extracurricular activities, which were wearing me out. Yeah, all five, the sports uh, all the and sports all the, and everything. Yeah, and yeah. so we were just, like, for, a, for that period of time, I, I felt like it was the first time that everything was quiet that we were physically safe from the, the people in the states. We weren't looking us. over our shoulder. We weren't looking time. over our shoulder, yeah. and so the the mambas and the 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 people running around our neighborhood with a hatchet were not anywhere near as terrifying it's to true. me as a mother than the people that were trying to hurt us back in Colorado Springs. Yeah. So I actually slept great there, and I I just I loved our time together as a family. It was just this wild adventure. Yes, and so then all this stuff happens in Africa. We have to leave. We move back to Colorado. Yes. And so tell us about that season. It was a tough, really hard season for us. That was probably the most intense thing we'd ever been through because most of the kids were in their teenage years. Caleb was 10 and Noah was 5, but the other ones were teenagers. And um, they'd all been traumatized as children. We thought that we had worked through all of that stuff. Um, and it was literally like going to Africa gave us this like moment of peace and coming back to the United States was like the scab got ripped off and yeah. we were just hemorrhaging everywhere. Our marriage hit, uh, uh, it just exploded. Yeah. Um, the kids were angry. It was uh, it was 2008, though, so the market was terrible. You couldn't find a job. It was it was very intense for it a long time. It was an intense time. And a lot of anger in the house, yeah. a lot of um, confusion, a lot of misunderstandings, and I was on my knees constantly but nothing seemed to to lift the pain so we because of all that and all the kids we stopped a bunch of world racers followed us to colorado springs yeah. about 40 of them and we just said look we can't do this anymore no, we so we that. stepped out of the world race at that time and i was just trying to work and, and get us some money and earn some money and it was just a hard hard on our marriage hard on the kids and and then the whole michael thing happens let's talk to us about that um <laughs> yeah, Michael is was our middle boy. He was six years old when I got him, and blonde hair and blue eyes. And he uh, was always looking for fun, and he was always looking for adventure. And he was he was just wild and out of control. And I remember learning how to parent him every day was like that. Was the center of my world was 
just asking the Lord, what does Michael need in a mother today? Because I knew that he, every time he acted out, it was because he was hurt and he was traumatized and he was confused. And so I spent a lot of time holding him and um, we just got very, very, very close. And he was really special to me to the point where I was in a women's group and three women asked if I could stay behind after everyone left. And they said, you talk about Michael more than anyone else. Your kids, other kids might be jealous. And I said, oh, no, I love all my kids. My kids are all amazing. Michael just had this really special place in my heart because I just saw how happy he would try to be even though his heart was broken. Yeah. And he was so sensitive. And we didn't know when we got back from Africa that um, he was being introduced secretly from uh, his birth mother to some really horrible bad things and to some drugs and the raves and parties. And and it, it started to manifest in his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we got him back and got him straightened out. And then he, he took his life on April 17th. And we're going to do a podcast. Our next one is dedicated to him. So we'll talk about him. Um, we barely made it through that. We still try to find times where we need to breathe. It's been six years almost. And, um, but talk about now. So you, we, we left. We, we were in Colorado Springs. We've lost Michael. Uh, we regain our strength. We should have been divorced. Um, and we're going to talk about that on our marriage <laughs> podcast. That you know, Losing a child, blended family. All the stuff Everything we walked through, losing us. a husband, lo- losing a wife, uh, the world has been against us and it's, and it's and it has turned us into transformed people because mm-hmm. we've chosen that. We've chosen to be transformed by the pain. Yeah. And so tell us about now. What is life like for you right now in Spain, G42, Gainesville with the world race and the, and the things we're doing? Um, I'm actually a really fun girl, so it's always interesting to me that my call on my life right now is to talk about pain and trauma and helping other people walk through it and um, I think that just now just like in the last two weeks even I have been weeping seeing God bring some things full circle and I don't believe that everything we lose on the earth we get to see the completeness of it before we die I think the kingdom goes on and on and on and we see things for years but just breakthroughs with our kids that are now adults, breakthroughs with um, dreams that we had and forgot about yes. are coming true now. Yeah. Um, the way we work together, the way our marriage is, the, the closeness that we have and the intimacy that we have. And we didn't just stay married. We fought really, really hard for our marriage. And it is a joy 99% of the time. It's still a real marriage. Yeah. We work it's, together. We do everything together. And it's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And, and when the kids are asked around here, like what's the biggest impact that Gary and Lisa had on you? And they always immediately go the way they love each other, the way they love Noah, the way they do family. And so we're going to talk about a lot of that on upcoming podcasts. We're going to do some marriage stuff. Uh, but this next one is going to be tough for us, but we're going to, we're going to um, re- release on April 17th. It's the six-year anniversary of our son Michael's death. Um, we're just going to dedicate that day to him and launch uh, our new website and kind of where we're headed as, as a couple individually and then in our, our bigger life with the ministries that we serve and the, and the people that we serve. And so, Lisa, I'm glad we're doing this together, babe. Oh, she freaks You're me out awesome. when you call me my first name. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, thank you. You did a great job. 